I approached the priest just briefly. I said, look, I've recently been raped and it's, it's made me feel terribly vulnerable and I'm in fear of losing my faith because why would God allow that kind of thing? And he lost it with me. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Terry Oakley-Smith is the founder and CEO of Diversity. She's best known for her work towards eradicating discrimination and how to manage diversity in organizations in an effective manner. In August 2017, Terry broke the silence on rape and its consequences. In an interview with ENCA at the time, Terry detailed the poor response that she received from local police and medical personnel. Sadly, even the church, the place she thought she would find the most support, let her down. I am Russell Pollitt, and this is Expanding Horizons. Terry, thank you very much for agreeing to come in and to do this podcast. I want to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your interests, and your hobbies. Yes, well, um, I came to South Africa about 40 years ago, so all my adult life has been lived here. I grew up in a Catholic family. My father was in the Royal Air Force and then became a diplomat, so we lived all over the world. And when I decided to put down roots, I came to South Africa. I have two sons, three grandchildren. Wow. And um, You look far too young to be a granny. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I'm absolutely, I'm very passionate about my work. I taught before that at Wits University. I'm a psychologist mm-hmm. by training. And then I started diversity in 1993. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any hobbies? Gosh, I don't think I really have much time for hobbies, although I'm a great <laughs> reader. Uh-huh. I, I really enjoy reading. And um I guess uh, hobbies are really, uh, the spare time that I have is really devoted to the kind of work that I do. Sometimes churches ask me to facilitate dialogues mm. for their people. And so I enjoy cooking, but my cooking's not great. So I don't think I can really <laughs> pretend to have many hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, in 2017, you had the immense courage to break the silence on your own rape ordeal. What brought you to the decision to do that? You know, I think it was a lot to do with being a white woman, Mm -hmm. having the privilege to be able to do that, knowing that I would have the support in doing it. And I also felt that I had a kind of responsibility to all the other women and girls and children who've been in this situation. I had a platform, I had access, and if I wasn't going to speak out, then how would other people speak out? Mm -hmm. So those were the feelings that impelled me to agree to the request for an interview with Joanne and talk about my rape. Did you find strength somewhere? Was it internal strength? Was it other people and their encouragement? You know, it was very difficult. I I have two sons um, who are both adults, mm. and I even found it hard to tell them that I was going to go public. Mm. When it happened, obviously, they knew and they always were and always have been enormously supportive. But I think it's terribly hard to live with the reality that your mother's been raped. Mm. So I guess 
It was more of an internal thing. I just thought that if, you know, I almost felt it like a responsibility. You know, I have this opportunity. I have, you know, I am articulate. I can find the strength somewhere. And I wish, I mean, I obviously did pray about it, but I didn't find a lot of strength from the church over the issue. Mm. But we can discuss that at a later stage, I guess. Mm. But I think it was just a feeling that if not now, never, and somebody has to talk about this, and I'm going to do it. Mm. And the reaction of people, the responses that you Mm. got at the time? Well, huge surprise from many areas because... You know, your average victim of rape is not seen as a white, elderly, or at least middle-aged type of woman. Mm. And also my rape was what they call stranger rape. Mm. I was raped in broad daylight at Zoo Lake in the morning, Mm. walking with two dogs, Mm. where I walked often and where I would have, where I felt quite safe. So um, I think people were surprised. They were outraged. They were initially very supportive. But I also felt that it was, I was in a sense breaking some taboos. Mm. You know, um, I have a brother who's a priest in England, Mm. and he's always found it extremely difficult to talk to me about it. Mm. Um, One of my sons has a coarser father, and in their family, those kind of things are kept under wraps. Mm. You don't discuss that. And my other son is married to a Muslim woman, And also in their family, they talked about the fact that Terry had been mugged. Mm. So the notion of it being a sexual violence or or sexual assault was what made it terribly difficult for people to to talk about. Mm. Mm. And, you know, people would use all sorts of uh, weird ways of, I'm so sorry to hear about what happened to you. Mm. I'm so sorry to hear about the incident, Mm. which I know was their way of trying to shield me. But what happened was that I was raped very brutally in broad daylight in a public park. Mm. And if that could happen to me, it, it happens It happens every day to countless women. It happens to girls. It happens to babies. It happens to old ladies. Mm. So we need to find a way of talking about it and dealing with it. Mm. There's an awkwardness always about talking about any issue really that's got to do with sexuality. Absolutely. And perhaps even more when it comes to violence in Mm. the area of sexuality, there's still a denial in our South African society and probably a denial in most parts of the world. Mm. And do you think this inability to use the word rape is part of that denial? Absolutely. And I think it's one of those words that's difficult to say and difficult to get out. But, you know, if we can't say the word, then we're never going to be able to deal with Mm. the pain of the victim. You know, people always talk about survivors. I don't think you ever survive rape. Mm. I think it lives with you forever. Mm. In fact, before I came this morning, I spoke to my son and said, I'm so afraid of doing this really because I know it's going to re-trigger a lot of emotions. Mm. But I feel I have to because if it reaches a Catholic audience and especially priests, then it will do some good, I hope. Mm. I want to get to talking about Mm. the church, but I want to ask you first, How do you, as someone who's been raped and other women, begin to find healing? Because I'm assuming that when rape happens and you come out speaking about it, as you've done, there's lots of initial support. And you've said that it's something obviously that never goes away. 
when people go back to their so-called normal lives and you're left there, where have you found support? I mean, have you found places where there is support? You've said your immediate family, but mm. in larger society? No, I mean, I haven't found support. And in fact, I really feel that I do, although it's a couple of years ago now. I mean, I still would appreciate much more support. Mm. My two sons have been enormously supportive. Both of my daughters-in-law find it quite difficult to talk about, mm. um, which I guess is understandable. It's not that they're not supportive, but they just can't talk about it. My friends, my close friends, exactly as you say, were very much there initially and supportive and visited. But um, it's about just over two years now and... Um, it's almost as if people don't want to talk about it because maybe it'll make me upset. Mm. But And maybe I need to be more clear about this is something we need to discuss. Mm. You know, this is something I need to talk about. Mm. Not endlessly reliving it, but maybe for the sake of other women saying, this is how you can support a woman who's been raped. Don't give up on her two or three months later. She still feels the pain. Mm. She still suffers the memories. So, you know, it's it's perfectly okay to say, how are you doing? Are you recovering? I know you were raped. It must be difficult to deal with for you. Mm. Those sort of things. An acknowledgement of it. Yes. And do you find talking also is part of the healing process? Well, I haven't really been given much of an opportunity to talk about it. Mm. I mean, I come from a very diverse family. As I said, one of my sons is, both of my sons, in fact, are married to Muslim women. Mm. One of them has a Khosa father and the other one is married to a colored woman. And in those communities, I guess in the so-called white community, it's easier to mm -hmm. talk about those things. But it's a real somehow taboo to talk about it. I mean, my son's grandmother, the Khosa one, with whom I was very close, we never, ever discussed it. Mm. I could just see that it wasn't, and, e and even the other members of her family, it wasn't okay to talk about it. And similarly with my other daughter-in-law's family who are so-called colored South Africans from nuclear, mm. um, very intelligent, lovely people. We have a wonderful relationship, but it's just never touched on. Mm. And that has a, dif it's difficult for me as the, as the victim because you begin to think, why can't they ever talk about it? Mm. You know, it wasn't, wasn't my fault. Mm. You know, this thing happened and, you know, I still need support. If I had been mugged, if I'd been attacked and survived, mm. I'm sure it would have been talked about far more. But as you say, Father, the fact that it's a sexually aggressive crime mm. and it involves people's vaginas and penises, mm. it makes it obviously very much more difficult for people to talk about. Mm. And it exposes the layers of our South African society, patriarchy, the questions yeah, around sexuality, mm. uh, sometimes even things around race, culture. Mm. It, it seems well, absolutely. to just bring I mean, all these things to the surface all in one cocktail. Yes. I mean, you know, my rapist was, uh, he was a young, black, Zimbabwean immigrant mm. without documents who was living rough in Zoo Lake. Mm. He was younger than my youngest son. He was about 25. He was caught. Mm. And one of the positive things that came out of that awful morning was the people from City Parks who were working there who heard me screaming mm. and initially didn't know what was going on. But when it went on for a while, they came and found me and rescued me. Mm. 
mm. um, and caught the perpetrator. Mm. So, yeah, I think the race thing, I mean, the unspoken question from white people who don't know me well and don't know that I have had a long-standing love relationship with an African man um, assumed that the blackness of the perpetrator would make it even more of an issue. Mm. So there were all kinds of unspoken questions around, you know, who was it, you know. Mm. And the and the most unspoken question was, was he white or was mm. he black? Mm. And then what if he was black? Oh, my God, how on earth did you? Mm. And for me, it was a rape. A rape is a rape. Mm. It was a, an act of violence. It wasn't a sexual act mm. at all. It mm. was a violent act, somebody dragging me through the undergrowth, tearing off my clothes and raping me. I mean, it's violence. Mm. That's, that, that's really what was at the core of it. And mm. that's what people fail to understand. Mm. And very often that is the case when it comes to rape. There's always this idea that it's got to do with sexuality or urges or whatever the case is. But at its very root, it is very violent. No, it is violent, completely violent. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how people don't get that. Mm. Because, I mean, sex is an intimate act of love. Mm. It should be. Mm. So a complete stranger dragging you into the bushes can hardly be seen in any way in that light. Mm. After this happened, you described with Joanne Joseph on ENCA the treatment that you got by medical personnel mm. and by the police, which seemed to be, and is often the case for many women, a second, a third, a fourth violation as well. No, it was absolutely like that. I mean, my, my son came and fetched me and we went to the police, to Parkview police station. So here's mm. my lucky white privilege again, mm. one of the best police stations in Johannesburg. They couldn't find the key to the victim's room, which is the room where if you've undergone a crime like that, you're supposed to be able to sit privately. So I had to sit in the general waiting room with these people marching this perpetrator backwards and forwards. <laughs> Nobody was there to, to talk to me or interview me. And I actually broke down and just insisted on leaving. Mm -hmm. And then um, I realized I had to have a medical examination. Mm. So I called my doctor and I didn't know, and I'm sure women don't know, you can't go to your doctor for the examination. Mm. You have to go to special a special hospital or a particular hospital where they have rape kits. So um, I think women, there needs to be far more just basic information. Mm. What do you do when you're raped? Where do you go? This sort of thing. So I went to the Mill Park Hospital with my two sons and... Um, the doctor was the most unbelievably unsympathetic sort of 60-year-old white male mm. who, I mean, said the most offensive thing to me. He examined me, obviously, and then he wanted to look under my fingernails, I guess, to see, you know, if there was flesh from the, mm. the victim. And then when he didn't find anything, he said, oh, I see you didn't fight back. And I mean, for me as a woman, and a I mean, private, you, you and fight. And a private facility yes. as well, because people normally say these things happen in public facilities. No, no, this was in one of the, you know, a one good of hospital. The best. But, but for me, it was also a total failure to understand what a woman does when she's being raped. I did fight back, mm. but my way of fighting back was to plead, to talk, to try and somehow, I was saying things to him like, oh, come on, I could be your mother. 
I could be your grandmother. Mm. Please don't do this to me. If you need money, I've got money in my car. I mean, I was trying to talk to him. I was mm. trying to somehow. So that was my way. I mean, all rape victims don't physically fight back. And mm. this guy was much bigger than me. Mm. He had a knife. I mean, I thought he might have friends in the bushes around mm. him because mm. it was a bushy area. You know, it could have been a gang rape for all I knew. So I was trying to deal with it and fight back in the best way that I could. You had this this ordeal relived, so to speak, with the police, and then again with the medical personnel. You said at the beginning that you're Catholic. Mm. Uh, did you go to the church? Did you find oh. any help in the church? You know, I wanted to, and I had hoped that I would find, um, I don't know what I hoped that I would find, comfort, mm. I think. And... I approached the priest. I was going to a different church then. I approached the priest after Mass and said, Father, I need to speak to you. Mm. So he said, um, all right, come and sit down. And then I, I told him what had happened just briefly. I said, look, I've recently been raped and it's it's made me feel terribly vulnerable and I'm f in fear of losing my faith because why would God allow that kind of thing? Mm. And he lost it with me. This has got nothing to do with God, you know. So, I mean, I think he felt terribly uncomfortable to give him his due. Mm. I mean, I don't suppose priests, or maybe they do, but I wouldn't have thought they hear this kind of thing every day. And being that it was rape that I was talking to him about may have felt made him feel, you know, I know Catholic priests are celibate. I don't know what his visions are of what happened. But, you know, I think there's a real need for the clergy to understand and um, encourage women. And because, you know, what I needed was a kind of prayerful response mm. and a comforting response. Mm. And maybe being in, put in touch with, I don't know if there's a Catholic organization of women maybe who, who help rape victims. And if there isn't, maybe we should think of setting one up. Mm. But... Um, I was really disappointed. And in fact, I stopped going to mass mm. for about a year mm. because I just felt, you know, this church that I've hung on to all my life mm. through good and bad times and through feeling close to the church and not feeling close to the church has now let me down in this most fundamental time mm. when I really needed something. Mm. But then a, a few months ago, I changed my church. I now go to Holy Trinity. I have never spoken to the priest there. I'm scared to talk to priests about it now. Mm. I just don't feel they'll understand or get it. Mm. But I do think there's a huge need for for the Catholics of the diocese to have somewhere mm. that because there must be hundreds or thousands of Catholic women of mm. all ages and all races, women from other countries who are living here, who've suffered what I suffered, whether it was a date rape or whether it was a stranger rape or whether it was being raped by their husbands. Mm. I just think that it's a, a service that the church should consider mm. providing. Mm. But I would be happy to, to be involved in something like that. Mm. I think as a rape victim, it's easier to talk to people who've been through it mm. because there's at least a sense they... They know what happened, even if the circumstances were completely different. I think it is. But um, what amazed me was that if people asked me about it, and so many people said, that happened to me. Mm. Mm. That, mm. That's happened to, to me. me. Men as mm. well as women. Mm. 
Mm. I remember when I was a child, that happened to me. I, I listen to you and I, and I say to myself, with, with the police, with, with medical personnel, but, but even with a priest, clearly if people haven't been through this experience, maybe it is more difficult for them to understand. But it also seems like there's a loss of our common humanity that you cannot sit there mm. in the pain of another person and just be present to them and respond in that painful presence. You, you, you don't have to do anything. And, you don't and maybe, even need to say anything, actually. And maybe sometimes people think, well, I, I need to do so. I need to mm. fix this. And, mm. and this kind of thing can't be fixed. But, mm. but it says something about our humanity. No, definitely. I mean, when I think of the police, in the end, they came to my flat. There's my white privilege again to take my statement. And my younger son was with me, thank God. And they sent a young black constable who didn't have, and it's not his fault, I don't speak Zulu or Sutu, but he simply didn't have the vocabulary. Mm. And his, he was tasked with trying to understand what had happened and ended up sort of making crude gestures, which I found completely devastating. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, the police obviously need to do an awful lot more about I think, first of all, they should send a woman if it's a woman who's mm. been raped. One would think, they and, and they have the capacity to yes, do that. And, and a woman who has some experience of how to deal with these situations. And I guess they were nervous and didn't, didn't know what to say to me. And mm. I mean, as I say, I, I think I was probably not their typical rape victim. Mm. Mm. I want to go back to the church because mm. that for me is... is it leaves me feeling pretty sad to hear of your experience. So you went to speak to a priest and basically you got very little consolation from that priest. I didn't get you, any consolation. I got a lot of anger mm. because he seemed to think that I was blaming God. Mm. And I wasn't blaming God at all. I'm not so... I mean, I don't think along that sort of paradigm. But I, I guess I was searching for where was God in all mm. of this and how could I find or reclaim God after this. Mm. But he just became so angry. In fact, I haven't been to confession or the sacrament of reconciliation at all since then mm. because the response from the priest was so antagonistic, I felt. I'm sure he didn't intend it to be, but that's how I received it that I don't even know where to begin mm. to talk about it in the silence of confession. And yet I would really like to be able to do that. Mm. So maybe for priests in understanding what women can go through in these situations is to understand that they may also need, I mean, not to confess that they were raped, mm. but I mean, because so many feelings of anger and hurt and you know, you just want to kill and, you know, come up. And I've always found the sacrament of reconciliation wonderful, very helpful. Mm. But it's something that I haven't been able to even think about since I was raped. Mm. The sacrament of reconciliation is also seen not just as a sacrament of confession, but also one of healing. I know. And, and that's exactly what you seem to be saying is that it's that need for healing. It's, it's that healing dimension mm. that I'm feeling somehow I desire and yet I'm not sure that that's what's going to happen. Mm. You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, I don't want to put myself in a situation again where a priest will be angry with me mm. for thinking that I'm blaming God. Mm. And how can a loving God allow this to happen? I mean, I think that at times in these kinds of situations, 
it is only natural for us to feel angry with God or there's mm. nothing wrong with that. And so often we, we don't want to talk about that either. Somehow that God is untouchable when it comes to our emotions, our mm. anger or our disappointment or our sense of loss or whatever the case is. How do you think we begin to train people to respond to the situation that you find yourself in in the church? Mm. I mean, I think... It should be the part of it. I know priests train for six or seven years, if mm. I'm not mistaken. And I wonder how much time of that is spent, given that sort of at least 50%, if not more, of their parishioners are going to be women. Mm. And the things, you know, living in our country, violence against women is just so prevalent. I wonder how much time is spent in training them around these issues. Do they know, you know, how to even what violence against women is. And, I mean, I think of marital rape. I mm. mean, does the church even countenance that that can happen? Mm. So, you know, I think there's a great need for the church to build in to its training of priests how to handle victims of violence against women particularly, how to deal with rape, mm. what it means, how do you deal with it, what do you say, do you say nothing? Mm. And then how do you follow up? I mean, having had such a disastrous preliminary conversation, I just stopped going to Mass. Mm. And the, I never got any call or anything saying, you know, I've noticed you haven't been at Mass for the last... Mm. Are you? Can we have a chat? And mm. I realise you must be feeling whatever. Mm. But then I think you need also... It's not just about priests. I think um, women, obviously nuns, but um, women in the community who are practising Catholics could also be involved in talking about these things with women mm. and helping, I mean, I think it's very difficult to avoid rape, but helping women to understand that it's never their fault. Mm. It doesn't matter what they were wearing, how much they'd been drinking, it is never their fault. Mm. That sense of it's my fault, that that, that second guessing of the, of, of the victim mm. seems to be always the case in so many of these stories, that the victim is dealing with two or three things, and one of those things is, will people believe me? Mm. Will, will people actually believe that this happened to me? Mm. Or will I be told it was my fault? Mm. That must be very, very strong. Mm. I think, you know, for a case like mine, it wasn't so much of an issue, mm. because I think when it's a total stranger in a public park, well, mm. you know... Um, but I think for women who are raped on dates um, and raped by members of their families, it's a huge issue. And for young women or even older women who are blamed because their skirt's too short, mm. remember that taxi rank mm. incident, or because they've been out drinking or whatever, you know, are made to feel, you know, if they'd been wearing something different or hadn't drunk alcohol, then this wouldn't have happened. Mm. And that must be a huge burden to have to live with. Mm. Talking about these kinds of issues from our pulpits, I suspect that if I asked people, they would say that they've never heard sermons about rape. I've never or, heard a sermon about rape. Mm. And do you think it would be important for these kinds of issues to be explored, for example, in sermons? Yes, I think it would be very helpful. And I think it would also be very helpful for women to be invited into the pulpit, mm. if that's allowed, and to say something about it. 
to talk about it and to talk to other Catholic women about it. Mm. So I think that it should be something initiated by priests and mentioned by priests. Mm. The whole issue of priests being celibate makes mm. it quite difficult for them, I would imagine. Mm. Clearly, there's discomfort in raising this issue. Mm. But I think it would open the doors for so many women, if these things could be. I mean, it's such a major issue in South Africa. Mm. And I mean, it might have been raised in my church, but certainly in none of the sermons that I remember. I think there's also this other problem which we have to face, maybe especially because the spotlight is on Catholicism at the moment. Mm. And that's the question of dealing effectively and with maturity and in a healthy manner with the question of human sexuality. This is a mm. this is an uncomfortable relationship that Christianity has always had mm. with sexuality, the, the relationship between Christianity and sexuality. Yeah. And I think maybe even more so in the Catholic Church because we come from a tradition where there's been so many rules, as people often say, about sexuality that that's another layer placed on the burden of doing something about it and speaking out about mm. it. Silence is always easier. You know, it's interesting. I actually think it's even more difficult for Muslims, to be honest. Mm. But I think that for Catholics, I mean, the whole gay and lesbian community is sidelined in many churches. Not in, not in mine, apparently. There's quite a thriving movement among the students who attend there. But um, we need to do far more to normalize it. And it's all very well having a group of gay and lesbian men and women who go off and talk about it at certain times. But again, why not mention it sometimes from the pulpit? I guess it's difficult, but mm. I think your yes, sexuality as part of human lives and human experience mm. is, is something that, that Catholics need to grapple with mm. far more than they do. Mm. And maybe it's quite different to what we've always held it to be as science begins to Mm. reveal things to us and as we begin to see science understanding things like gender fluidity exactly. in ways that 20 or 30 years ago we didn't have any idea. Yeah, it would have seemed completely impossible. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. I think good theology is always in dialogue with science and when that dialogue is missing, our theological content is certainly hollowed out mm. and therefore we land up with a lot of these uh, difficulties. And it's also sociological in a sense mm. that as society changes and young people are far more open to discussions of gender fluidity and these kind of issues. And in fact, I learn a lot from young people in my work. And there's a need for the church to keep up. Why do we want to be left behind as old fogies? Mm. For young women who have been raped, what is your advice to them if they are in a space and a place where maybe they haven't spoken about this, they, they're hanging on to it? What would you advise them to do? I would always advise them to talk, to find somebody to talk to about it. It could have happened 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Mm. The woman will still be bearing the pain. Mm. So I think it's very important to find someone to talk to. And, you know, for Catholic people, that the priest should be a port of call and unfortunately isn't at the moment. Mm. So I think that's an issue. I think it's particularly hard in some communities as well to find somebody to talk to. Mm. and to get the sense that it can never have been your fault. Mm. That's the kind of key understanding. Whatever happened, you didn't make it happen. Mm. You're suffering, but you didn't make it happen. Like so many ministries in the church, we do have women who are running those ministries. There's no reason why a priest can't appoint a woman in a place yeah. and say, you are now responsible for 
looking after those perhaps who come forward and and say that they have been through the ordeal of mm. rape. Yes, I mean it could be a woman, it could even be a man. I mean, mm. but somebody who has an interest and a knowledge and and a compassion. Mm. Gosh, that's what I found most lacking. Mm was that sense of compassion. And that would have been the thing that one would have hoped, I guess, that you would have found first and foremost in the church, is a sense mm. of compassion. That's why I went to speak to the priest. Mm. Terry, your story is a remarkable one for a number of reasons, but I think most especially because you broke the silence courageously, not just by telling people around you, but by going on national TV and speaking about what happened to you. How do you think this is going to expand the horizons of hope? In what ways do you think that your ordeal can do that? I think in one way, I mean, I know in one way it's kind of normalized. Mm. It's made women, because I didn't tell a lot of people when it happened, but a lot of people who know me found out through the TV interview. Mm. And a lot of strangers also made contact with me. And it was so many of them were women who'd been raped. So I think that... In speaking out, I did create, in a way, an avenue for women to speak to other women about mm. those things that had happened. And I also normalized rape as something that can happen to any women, mm. any woman. The fact that I was white, I think, was quite surprising. I mean, a number of black people said to me, I didn't realize that white women got raped. Mm. As if we're somehow, you know, our privilege even extends to our bodies being sacrosanct, which mm. it obviously doesn't. Many white women are abused and raped, not as many, obviously. So I think it was good from that perspective that okay. it kind of normalized it. It was something that I could talk about. I was rather sorry the police and the hospital didn't come back to me and say, not say sorry, but say, what can we do to make our service better? Mm. You know, you had a bad service from us. How can we make sure this doesn't happen to other women? So, Terry Oakley-Smith, thank you very much for agreeing to come and to talk to us. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for being willing to speak so openly about something that affects so many people in South Africa and across the world, something which we as a church need to seriously take on board and do something about. I'm humbled by your willingness to come here and talk to me. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.